Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy Hanukkah. Someone did that there. I think, not yet, almost. Tonight. So at sundown, you can text me, Happy Hanukkah, and it'll count, but that's how that goes. How many of you started decorating for Thanksgiving, I mean, decorating for Christmas before Thanksgiving? How many of you think that's an abomination? Yeah, so, yeah. Well, how many Black Friday faithful decorators in here? No, sometimes. How many are just like, I'm not decorating? That's a, that was a past life. I don't attempt that. Yeah. So we begin decorating on November 1st because I just, once I found out it kind of rubbed people the wrong way, I just decided to keep doing it. So, <laughs> so that goes. It started last year because I was like, pandemic, this is the worst, you know. So I bought this, the biggest blow up techno frosty thing I could get and I put it out November 1st right in the front lawn and all my neighbors are texting me like, nice frosty, LOL. And I was like, now more than ever, gotta need that Christmas hope getting it going. So we kind of, we, we ramp it up progressively uh, over time and get it going, trying to get the, the light breaking in a, a little early, right? And there's no, you know, Thanksgiving is, is an American holiday, but Christmas is a biblical holiday, so supersede, you know, one of those is more important than the other ones. And you can give thanks and have hope as you go, and that's kind of the whole deal. But one of the things I love about my wife is, and we kind of got to the bottom of this just recently, is when, as soon as football season started, she would want football on TV all the time. Uh, she doesn't really like like watching every single play unfold per se, but she just likes the, the TV on the, the football on TV, the sound of the crowd, all like the, the kind of environment creation that having TV on does. And I was asking her like, why do you think you like that? Because you could just look up on YouTube crowd noise, you press play, you know, and <laughs> you can watch old football clips, you know, and, but she, she said, I like when football starts because that means Christmas is coming. And that's something that only people from Arizona think about, you know, it's like in September, you're like the oppressive heat, you know, that's going down and soon I'll be able to, you know, go for a walk in the morning without sweating. It's coming soon. I can feel Christmas coming. And that, but that ramp up to Christmas, when do you start it? When do you not start it? How soon is too soon? So we start it now in September when there's football on Saturday and you, and you hit that season where there's football, Thursday night, football, Friday, if you go to a local game, football Saturday, football Sunday, football Monday, and it's all kind of like signals the end of summer, the ramping up to uh, Christmas. And so th- that's not biblical and <laughs> from like Advent looking forward to Christmas, but we get going real early on the excitement of the season. And this whole like building towards Christmas thing, how much hope is too much hope? Uh, how much Christmas tears too, cheer is too much Christmas cheer? Because uh, for a lot of people, at a minimum, the holiday season becomes this real mixed bag. Uh, maybe, the, maybe Thanksgiving used to be someone's favorite holiday, but they're not here anymore. Christmas used to be this family reunion, but now there's this division or separation, either like morally or geographically. We're in different places, and so it's just kind of this tension-filled thing. Or maybe it's just that pain of like now, like even like in my family, my siblings all have other significant others who now they're now there's like you're competing for calendar space and not everyone can get like the grade a cut of time and so there's just less and you used to have this whole family thing and now it's splintered and so sometimes the splintering is uh, because someone passed sometimes it's because there's tension sometimes it's just even if it's for good reasons like kids growing up and getting married and moving away that's i think something that people would generally say is a good thing but it still creates some pain around these seasons how do you how much hope is too much hope? How much cheer is too much cheer? When are you being like fakely positive versus really rooting yourself in a biblical view of hope? Uh, 
is it all just kind of this money-making thing? You know, is Christmas overblown because the companies want to just go from the red to the black and uh, we sow seeds of discontentment so we can just over-purchase for each other and then spend the rest of the year paying off credit cards? I mean, you can, you can go real negative on Christmas, right? Or you can say Christmas starts in September when the football starts, <laughs> you know? So, so, so there's just this real tension that we're living in and real looking forward to and going, how real is the hope? That's the question. Do we hope because it's like a survival mechanism to keep going or do we hope because it's real hope? Did Jesus really come and take on flesh? Is he really coming back again and making all things new? Or is this just something that we convince ourselves of so that we can keep going. And that's a lot of what this Advent sermon series for us is really all about, is truth we can touch. It's not just ideas. It's not just a belief that gives me positive vibes for the future. It's not just a way of coping with present suffering, but it's actually something we can experience and lay hold of and connect with. And the sermon today is really just kind of a long introduction to the next three weeks, which is when the rubber really meets the road. Next week, we're gonna talk about uh, the gathering of God's people and how part of the truth we can touch has to do with even like the verses that I would read like when I was in middle school in the New Testament talk about greet one another with a holy kiss. And I would think like that sounds like amazing and terrifying. I don't want to go to church and be greeted with a holy kiss. That sounds scary. But what do you do with this like greeting one another, this physical gathering, the fellowship? All right, those of you who are watching online, I'm glad you're watching online. But part of our hope next week is that you realize that that is just way worse and it's not the same is showing up in person in the room, addressing one another in songs and hymns and, and spiritual songs. The next week we're gonna talk about baptism and how God gives us these uh, five sensory experiences of baptism in the Lord's Supper to hold on to and remind us and teach us that Jesus has a real body and he's really marking us into a real family and we get to participate in the life of this family. And so, so much of like the gritty five sense, eyes, touch, smell, taste, connection that we get from like lived bodily experience, we're gonna talk about how God doesn't just use those tools to teach us about the faith, but how those things are actually central to what it means to have life with God. And so what I hope to do this morning is actually convince us and maybe for a lot of us just remind us the fact that Jesus' real five sense body, born, grew up, went through puberty, lived, was really murdered, was really risen, that all this concrete bodily reality is not just an addition to our faith, but it's actually central to our faith that this Hebrews 2 text, that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that this text was actually the most quoted text by theologians in the first couple hundred years of the church. This one right here. He had to be made like us, his brothers and sisters, in every respect. Real body, real senses, real pain, real disappointment, real discouragement. That tension between how much hope, how much grief. He did it, he lived it. And he's inviting us into that as well. So I wanna uh, just pray for our morning and pray for our series and that we all would see our bodies and the body of Jesus as uh, something that the scriptures are shaping and inviting us into a fuller way of living. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for my friends and my family that are here. Thank you for the new folks who showed up for the first time who are testing the waters on this Christmas thing and is it just a corporate holiday or is there something about eternal reality that it teaches us? God, I pray for soft hearts and open minds. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So some of this whole idea of incarnation, being in the body, is I think a lot of us have these kind of mixed relationships with our bodies. It's, it scares us. Especially it starts to do what we don't want it to do pretty early on. And it ends up being like a, a, this fear management thing. And even this text right here, it says, and deliver all those who, the fear, who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What Hebrews is talking about here is that this fear of death thing subjects us to lifelong slavery. And what they're arguing here is that fear of death is not just a fear that's out there, but fear of death is the central fear that drives our entire operating process and the way we think about life. That actually nihilism, this belief that nothing really matters, you just kind of live your life and then you die, actually leads to uh, hedonism, this pursuit of pleasure at all costs, that people are enslaved to sin. A lot of you in this room, you probably feel like, yes, I believe in God, yes, I believe in Jesus, but when it comes to your sin, it's can't stop, won't stop. There's just this deep desire, like I can't stop doing the things that I know I shouldn't do because part of it is this deep-seated belief that I have to make the most of every opportunity to feel pleasure, otherwise I'm missing out and I'm wasted. And what we're getting to here is this idea that being afraid of death in the body actually controls us way more than we want to admit and way more than we even understand sometimes. That there's this, the, the, the love of sex, the love of money, the love of power very often has to do with how much ability do I have to control my momentary happiness? How much ability do I have to make sure I maximize my return on investment on pleasure, period, all the time? And what they're saying here is that Jesus takes on a body born of a virgin, really lives the bodily existence that we were supposed to live, and actually in his death, in his becoming vulnerable in that body, is the way that we are delivered from the fear of death in our bodies. This is one of the things I love about hanging out with toddlers, especially my toddler, not really all toddlers, (laughs) probably not your toddlers, but my toddler, is, is there's still like this foolish lack of fear that creates this total openness of spirit, right? You see these, the toddler laughs, full belly, no holding back, just gurgling with absolute joy and intensity and how basically the rest of people's lives ends up being a shadow of the joy that they had in those early years. And already, like I can see in him, this like self-protective, don't laugh that hard because things will get bad thing begins to develop. That he's at two years, three weeks, and he's already laughing less hard than he did six months ago. <laughs> I think even, and some of it's like, you know, normal, healthy stuff. Like yesterday we were at Air Guitar and he was do, jumping off this thing that's like this high, jump to daddy, jump to daddy. And then he goes, no, I do it. And so I'm like, okay. And then he jumps off, face plants in the ground. And I'm like, that's what you get, you know. <laughs> know your limits. Don't ever push me away. It'll hurt you, you know, so. He was fine, but he get up and I was like, oh, Jay, are you okay? He's like, yeah, it's scary, you know, and spooky. That's a Halloween word, spooky. No spooky, no spooky. Uh, but it's just crazy to think about Jesus as a toddler who's jumping, had to learn, don't jump from that high. Who had to learn, uh, if you laugh too hard, people make fun of you, so hold back. Uh, if you, who had to learn uh, this exposure thing. And so much of this is driving towards vulnerability. And so I just wanna kind of rip through a list here of what I think the incarnation proves to us or teaches us about things that matter. First of all, incarnation proves to us that history matters. Jesus was born in a place to a people with history, with a culture, with presence. 
that Christianity is a remarkably pro-history tradition, that so much of the obsession and the connection and the desire to learn and study history came from Christianity, especially from the Jewish people who were telling stories of what had happened and what had been and how what had happened to shape what we are. We have to be people who appreciate and recognize that God works in history and he works through stories. Second thing that creation proves is that bodies matter. In a cultural moment where everyone is telling you your body doesn't tell you the truth about who you are, actually your psychology tells you the truth about who you are, Christianity resists that and says no, the incarnation of God, Jesus being fully God and fully man, proves to us that bodies actually tell us the truth about who we are. That who you are, if you tell me who you're not, I'm gonna look back at your history, well where were you born, who'd you come to, I'm gonna trace your bodily history and your bodily history actually tells us about who we are, where we've been and what we've done. A lot of the times we mistreat our bodies either through like over-medication or through neglect, it's because we think our bodies don't matter. We think all that really matters is like our soul or something like that. But you can't care for your soul without caring for your body. Your soul looks through your eyes, your soul touches through your hands, your soul uh, beats through your heart, you connect with other people, you hear your soul is fed through the ears, like this is, we're whole people, and so your body really matters. And some of you, all you need to take away from today is that your body matters Stop hating it, stop neglecting it, stop abusing it. Jesus made your body and he likes your body. The third thing that our, our condition proves is that presence matters. Jesus was born to a place, meaning he was also born not to other places. All of you right now are in this place, you are not somewhere else. When you go online, you don't go online, you disassociate from your body and your thoughts look at stuff somewhere else. You can only be in one place at one time. Omnipotence, omnipresence, you being everywhere at all times and all places is one of the lies of the internet. You cannot be in two places at once. You can't be with your kid at the park and check in on the score of the game. You're only in one place. Embracing some of those limits of being in one place is part of the deal. The fourth thing we see is that limits matter to be bound in a body, in a location. Some of us feels like death because it's a reminder that we're not God, that we can't accomplish everything. So much, of, so much of, I think, being a healthy person, living a healthy life is being in touch with our limits, embracing our limits, and recognizing that that will disappoint a lot of people and making sure we choose to disappoint the right people. Some of us are stretched too thin, doing too much, going too far, too hard, too long, and it's because we haven't yet chosen to, dis- to disappoint the right people. When you're limited, other people will be disappointed, period, the end. Just pick the right ones. Merry Christmas, right? I see it played all the time in marriages, you know, like someone can't disappoint their mom, so they have to say yes to everything, or someone can't disappoint aunt whoever, and so like, part of life is disappointing the right people. The fifth thing we see here is that vulnerability is the way of love. Now, vulnerability means woundability, the ability to be wounded. This is what we see with Jesus here. For because he himself suffered when tempted. Think about God's suffering. The reason this verse was texted, was quoted so much in the early church is that people believed that God could not suffer. How could an all-knowing, all-powerful God suffer? And here you have God in the body suffering. He doesn't just suffer like the normal bodily stuff, but he suffers when tempted. We know that temptation can feel like suffering, that saying no to temptation feels like additional suffering. We also know that being able to be wounded for love is part of the way of this thing, that Jesus comes to die. 
He comes to die to be a propitiation. That means a substitute. That all the wrath that we deserve for our sin, Jesus takes into himself. He suffers for love. His mother, Mary, suffers for love in giving birth. His mother, Mary, suffers for love in changing diapers and raising a child. His mother, Mary, suffers for love in parenting a a teenager. But then Jesus grows up and suffers for love. And so one of the things we think all the time is that if I'm a a healthy, grown-up person, I'm going to be unwoundable, impervious. That I'll be unaffected. I'll be cold, callous, disconnected. The Stoics, a whole philosophy, this, this belief that I can, I can rein in my ability to be affected by other people and just kind of be this calculated robot who makes rational choices. Jesus actually shows us the opposite, that staying woundable or becoming woundable, that before Jesus took on flesh, he was essentially in a different way non-woundable, but he becomes woundable for love, walking into vulnerability. And especially these last 18 months, especially these last two years, It's been attempting two years to really avoid woundability and to become non-woundable. People disappoint you. People attack you. People disagree with you about masks or vaccines or this or that or this. And there's like this, you develop this callous. I'm not going to let people get in. I'm going to keep them at a distance. Arm's length, push them away. But part of what I want us at Redemption Gateway to see that we are going to be a healthier, warmer, Christ-like community when we decide to keep staying woundable. To be open. To not pursue untouchability. To not pursue absolute independence. But to actually keep showing up and putting ourselves in the position where we might get hurt again. Might get hurt again. I feel this in my own heart. I was putting up Christmas lights for like a thousand hours this past weekend because, man, we're in a new house and we went with incandescent bulbs, which means that I blew lots of fuses and had to keep trading them out. Those of you who care, incandescent's warmer, more classic, not LED, which is kind of less warm, less classic. But the LED, you know, are a lot easier. So I'm blowing these fuses. I'm getting frustrated. And I just keep thinking in my heart, you know, maybe we just won't do Christmas lights this year because all this failure is getting to me, you know? <laughs> If I go to Home Depot one more time, they're going to look at me saying, oh, fifth time, huh? You know, you need to get a punch card for this guy. And like, so I'm buying new stuff for the fifth time, you know. And, but you find it in your heart, like just the desire to withdraw, the desire to quit, the desire to tap out. I don't need all this disappointment. I don't need to keep feeling like such a loser at Home Depot, you know. And so, but I chose, you know what? And I was telling myself, I love my wife more than I love the approval of these Home Depot workers. So I'm going to keep going. But that in small ways, we find this in our own hearts. We see it. We experience it. But there's this movement in our current culture. You know, I see it. I Maybe I get ads for it. Maybe it's because I do CrossFit. But people, if you wear any of these shirts, I'm not trying to offend you specifically. Um, <laughs> but this will be generally offensive to you. Uh, these shirts that say, lions, not sheep. Right? We're not sheep or lions and it's mostly people who are very sheepish who are wearing these shirts you know <laughs> like, like your great act of being a tough guy was buying that shirt and wearing it in public you know so <laughs> not who you think you are buddy but anyway so the <laughs> lions not sheep and there's like this I'm a lion you know in this uh desire to have this hyperinflated view of self it makes me think about how you know my son now he's like this tall and there's all these like railings places that are like this tall right and so he could just walk right under it but he goes like this 
because he thinks he's way bigger than he is. We're like that as humans all the time. We think we're way bigger than we are. Uh, you could walk right under that. You're, you're two and a half feet. You're not four feet, dude. So. But just it's so incongruent with the way of Jesus who becomes a baby in his act of love, who becomes a vulnerable one, who requires help and input from others. And even when Jesus looks at his disciples, here's his, one of his exhortations to them. He says this in Matthew. Um, he says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You are gonna get eaten alive. We are not wolves. We are not lions. We are sheep. And part of the call of Jesus is to go out and get eaten by alive. Go get and eaten alive, not by alive. Go, get, go out and get eaten alive. This is the way of the kingdom, to be woundable, not just by friends and family, but by strangers. And when the wolves bite and devour, this is what I signed up for. I signed up to be a person of the kingdom, a, an agent of peace, in the midst of this hostile and dark world. You know, sometimes when the sun comes up, it's too bright, you know, my, especially when my son wakes up in the morning, you see the light coming through the window, and he goes, too bright. I think he's mostly just being dramatic. It's not too bright, but he goes, too bright. And that's what happens sometimes with the world, is that, you know, the, the light is shining, and it's too bright, and we need to shut it down, and so the, the wolves attack and try to undermine and pull us apart. Part of the message of Christmas is that we be open and woundable. And so here's the, I want to say, here's some ways that we avoid vulnerability that I want us to be aware of and notice this. So vulnerability, woundability. First one is this, medication. And I mostly mean that by non-prescribed uh, medication. We medicate through TikTok. We avoid, we numb ourselves with dopamine hits. We medicate by having that one too many drink because that kind of helps us take the mind off things. We medicate by, you know, saying this medical marijuana is for my chronic back pain, but really it's for my psychological pain that I don't want to address. We medicate by uh, becoming obsessed with gambling and sports and noticing all this stuff. We just, we avoid ourselves through some type of chronic input. Uh, next one is through uh, minimization. It's not that bad. I know a lot of you, and a lot of you are professional minimizers. The pain's not that bad. Yes, this terrible, awful thing happened, but a lot of people have that happen twice. Yes, that's, that was traumatic and awful and bad, but at least this is a way of lying. Minimizing is lying. You're lying to yourself, you're lying to your friends. Because if we minimize it, then we don't have to feel the bad feelings associated with it, and I can just keep going on. Call what is bad, bad. Call what is good, good. We don't need to be minimizers. We don't need to avoid our pain through minimization. The third one is mediation, distance creation. Pull back. Withdraw. I'm not going to show up. I'm going to mediate. I'm not going to sit across the table and say the hard thing. I'm going to thumbs out, tweet the thing, and then because I don't want to have to see your physical reaction to my words, so I'm going to like let the screen do it for me because it's easier. This is like where like the, the tough guys on Twitter come out. You know, they're like, I can say really hard things, send, but then you get across the table from them and it's scary because we, we're afraid of causing pain, receiving pain, and so much of even that socialization process uh, that happens through adolescence is now done through digital devices and it, it lowers our ability to have like social pain tolerance because like, oh, that, was a, that joke didn't land and now I have to deal with that and I can move on. I'm okay, right? Whereas... 
doesn't work like that. The fourth way is manic activity. Some of you wouldn't know how to take a day off if it punched you in the face. Just doing, 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 doing. Can't sit still, can't be quiet, can't mind your own thoughts. You're at church way too much. You can't say no to an opportunity. You know, you all day on Saturday, it's yard work, yard work, yard work, yard work, yard work. Meanwhile, your spouse is like, hey, we want to spend time together? You're like, we did, I pulled weeds. <laughs> and the fifth one, which doesn't start with an M, uh, is tribalism. <laughs> this is us withdrawing into our tribes because what makes us feel safe is having the right group. If I'm just in the right group, then those other groups aren't gonna get me. And so we adopt like this, this little kind of, this is my people and these people are gonna keep me safe from those people. And we kind of just throw darts at other tribes because if, we, if I'm in this tribe, then I can be against that tribe. And what makes me feel safe is having this tribe. Rather than embracing the global humanity that all people are made in the image of God, all churches are shared this bond and the unity of peace, we just kind of do this infighting tribal thing because it helps us feel safe. Distance. So here's what I want us to do as we look at like this em- like healthy embrace of sober Christmas cheer is that we lean into vulnerability. That some of you need to spend the next 10 years getting more hurt than you spent the last 10 years because the last 10 years you spent avoiding being vulnerable, avoiding love, avoiding being known, avoiding being seen, avoiding really kind of ourselves. I know that some of you have felt very vulnerable for a very long time and you had really no choice in the matter. But I have a list of five things I want us to do to try to be vulnerable. And some of you will just hopefully do one thing on this list and that'll be a win. First one is just try. Decide. I'm going to try to lean into the possibility of being hurt by people. I'm just gonna try. It's been a long time since some of you just tried. You've been distancing, staying distant for a while. Uh, the next one is tracing your triggers. We kind of got this like thing going on in our culture where we think that triggers are things to be avoided, that we, if we're triggered, we go and find a safe space and we never address the trigger. Whereas some of the best therapists I've talked to talk about how when you are triggered, actually leaning into your trigger, why is this bothering me? Why is this causing such a reaction? Tracing it back to the history of where it got there, following it, understanding it, because a lot of times there's triggers there because there's unprocessed grief or loss and these different things just set us off. And so we want to be people who follow our triggers and you might need to process those triggers in a safe space like with the therapist or something like that. But other times it's just you got to decide to not run away from it and to lean into it and find out what's going on there. Um, the third one is trading PTSD for PTSG, post-traumatic stress disorder for post-traumatic stress growth. A lot of times the worst things in our life Um, We can grow from them. We don't have to just be crippled by them. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes PTSD lives with us and we're avoidant because we've been so betrayed and so hurt for so long. And again, this is something that's a process. You don't just decide, don't be negatively affected by that. Now be positively affected by that. You can't just decide to do that. Otherwise, you would have done it already. Sometimes it takes work in community and working with counselors or, or close friends over coffee, being like in these environments or working through this. But God really uses the pain in our life to grow us somehow. That's not to say the pain in our life wasn't bad or worth grieving, but he really uses it to give us post-traumatic growth, not just post-traumatic stress. 
The fourth one is we trust the tempted one. This comes from our text. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That Jesus was betrayed, misunderstood, murdered, physically assaulted, on and on and on down the list. And in all of that, he was tempted to sin and yet he didn't. And so we can be sinned against, hurt, dismissed, misunderstood, tossed around. All of those things can happen to us and we can cling to Christ who say, if nobody else gets me, he gets me. If nobody else knows what it's like to want to lash out in anger in the situation, Jesus does. If nobody else knows what it's like to have a friend die, Jesus does. If nobody else knows what it's like to be the one dying, Jesus does. Not only that, but Jesus was the one who was separated from his father when he, was, when he died. So he knows what it's like to be separated from parents. Not only that, but Jesus was the one who, in the midst of all this, maintained this, this open and po- ability posture to see and connect with the most vulnerable of people because their vulnerabilities didn't make him feel insecure about his vulnerabilities, but actually their vulnerabilities, he found connection with them and moved towards them in love. The deepest, darkest ways that you've been hurt or betrayed or even just in small, subtle, social ways cast aside, Jesus has been there. And the last one here we have is to touch the truth. And by that I mean what we're talking about our next three weeks is that part of our growth and our ability to stay vulnerable is to hold in our hands every week the body and blood of Jesus and to say, Jesus suffered for love for me. And so I have this secure, stable, rooted identity that I don't earn or achieve, but I just receive. And so when I go out and choose to suffer for love, nothing's really at stake about my identity. I can risk pain, but I'm not gonna risk me. That their rejection doesn't equal me being worthless, that their dismissal doesn't equal me being worth dismissing, that their sin against me doesn't equal that I'm worth sinning against. But the final word is the blood of Jesus on my worth and my identity. And also when we come and we're we're baptized, some of you hopefully in a couple weeks will be for the first time recognize that baptism is for you, that you were marked entrance into the family of God, that just as Jesus baptized, you can be baptized, you can become a part of the family of God in a visible, tangible way that this picture of being born again is you going, I am once sin for all, truly, certainly, finally, and eternally part of the family of God. So I don't need to keep trying to work for my identity and building it on power places, peoples, and things. But then also the showing up regularly to church, not neglecting the fellowship, being here, seeing people, learning names, deciding on a regular basis to show up with vulnerability and curiosity, to allow yourself to be seen and to see others in a real way. That these are muscles that we build over time. I was in London just two weeks ago for a week for work stuff and it was the longest I've been apart from my son uh, since he was born thanks to pandemic stuff and uh, usually when I go to work in the morning he goes see you later daddy and then uh, he goes daddy going to work making money that's what he says making money (laughs) I'll correct that narrow vision of vocation later going to work to love my neighbor and I'm also going to make some money you know so you had layers to it. daddy going to work making money and it's usually okay big kick big cuss big big kiss big hug you know and we say goodbye that's generally positive but I get back from London and I spend a day with him and the next day I go to work he's like no daddy no stop it no work because all of a sudden he has this experience of 
daddy goes away, he, and he might not come back. And I'll, like, it was the first time me going to work was like an event for him, right? And daddy, no, and I said, I'm going to come back. No, daddy, stop it. And so the way to, like, saying goodbye was a longer process that time because I had to convince him I was going to come back. And I was like, on what basis do I have, you know? And, but I think like, this is like why the, the tension of Advent is right there. Is that can we say yes to the pain of, okay, fine, go to work? The reason we're able to say that is because we know that he's coming back. That if I really have this belief that Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. That makes these short-term pains in many directions not just palatable, but it makes them part of this greater story that I'm playing in God's role. God is writing a story, and I'm playing a role in it. And my role in that story is to be an agent of love, a sheep among wolves, who, because of love, is willing to let myself be known, to try to know others, and that's going to create pain and tension from time to time, but it's worth it because I'm part of this big story in which Jesus can come back and right all the wrongs and make all things new. And so the hope of Christmas is not just that Christ came so we can be positive thinkers. That's not what it is. The hope of Christmas is that Christ came and he's coming again and so my pain is rooted and my pain tolerance is rooted and my willingness to love and to be loved actually is rooted in the fact that even when it goes bad, Jesus will come back and make it good. And so I hope that for us to be a hope-shaped people that's not just kind of this positive thinking, nothing ever bad's gonna happen deal, but we're going, it's going to hurt and it's worth it because Jesus is coming back. That we can touch the truth and we can get close enough to be hurt because Jesus has done it and he's gonna come back and he's gonna undo all which has harmed us. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for Advent. Thank you for your arrival. Thank you for your first coming and I pray that you help us set our sights on the second coming. God, as we live life in these bodies, uh, our five senses, our ability to be hurt, our pain sensors, God, help us have vision for what it looks like to steward um, the time you've given us well. I pray these next couple weeks in the Advent season that those of us who have been hopeless will become hopeful. Those of us who uh, haven't lived into this vulnerability that love requires, that you'd give us the energy to do it. God, when things go wrong or when things get hard, help us not see that as evidence of anything besides the fact that we may be walking in your way. In your son's name we pray, amen.